Well, good evening, saints of the Most High. Good evening! We appreciate you laboring in prayer for us a few minutes while we arrive. We promise this evening we will not waste your time. Last week together, we thoroughly enjoyed the appearance of Ezra. We learned about his diligent study, his observance, and his dedication to teaching the decrees of the Lord to Israel as a body. Tonight, we will be diving into chapter 8, where we'll have the privilege of peering into Ezra's practical observance of Adonai's command. We will see him take action upon the weighty call that was entrusted to him. We as a body are in a time of proving faithful with what has been given to us by Adonai. Sunday was an extraordinary time together. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Pastor Eric is now in Indonesia with his family. And it is up to us to carry out faithfully what has been entrusted to us. Look, before we begin our review, it is worth reading 1 Chronicles 29 together. This is, these are verses 14 through 18. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you. And we have given you only what comes from your hand. We are foreigners and strangers in your sight, as were all our ancestors. Our days on earth are like a shadow without hope. Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a temple for your holy name comes from your hand, and all of it belongs to you. I know, my God, that you test the heart and are pleased with integrity. All these things I have given willingly and with honest intent. And now I have seen with joy how willingly your people who are here have given to you, Lord, the God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Keep these desires and thoughts in the hearts of your people forever and keep their hearts loyal to you. We are proud to be a part of a body like LCM. It is our highest honor to give all alongside our brothers time and time again. It is our fervent prayer during these days that the Lord Almighty would keep these desires in us. That loyalty to the King and His gospel would define us in every single area. Hallelujah. Now we truly have learned the secret of being entrusted with weighty, valuable things. That is... Recklessly abandoning all for the cause of Christ. Not caring a damn for what it cost us to complete the mission. We will. Say we will. We will. We will prove faithful in our marriages. We will prove faithful in our parenting. We will prove faithful in our teams. And we will prove faithful in every other outward area. Because we have the good deposit. And we cannot be stopped. As we begin our review with you. This evening, we want to give glory to God for the way the Holy Spirit has organized our time together. Each wave of return and the content of the men's lives recorded in Ezra Nehemiah has been life-giving, instructive, and has caused us to grow into maturity as a body. Now, we have a slide for you. I want you to raise your hand if you've never seen this slide before. (laughs) Praise God! You guys are learning some stuff tonight. You probably remember that there were three sieges on Jerusalem from our Jeremiah studies. As you engage with this slide, notice the three rectangular boxes titled Zerubbabel, 
Ezra, Nehemiah. They represent three waves of returning Jewish people to the land of promise that are detailed in the work we are covering together. Now, draw your attention to the left side of the screen, where there are two arrows. The 70 years of prophesied desolation began in the third siege and continued for 23 years after the Persians rose to power. The temple was destroyed in 586 BC, and it was rebuilt and completed in 516 BC under the administration of Zerubbabel. We know and acknowledge this slide says 515, but you guys know that it was 516. The prophets Haggai and Zechariah were at work during this period. Haggai focused his efforts on regaining the initial enthusiasm to complete the work that had already begun on the temple, but had stalled. Zechariah focused on the assurance that the work would be completed, even though it had stalled. The Lord used these prophets to ensure that the work on the temple was completed exactly 70 years after it had been destroyed, just as Jeremiah and Chronicles indicated. In our own day, in our own time, an altar to the one true God of Israel has been rebuilt. The warning of prophets like Haggai and Zechariah has stirred us into action. And it is by the power of the Spirit that it is being brought to completion. Guys, we must finish what we have started. That can only be accomplished by holding on to and developing the gospel that has been brought even as far as you and I. We are raising capable men in this house who will carry the gospel all the way to the nations. Our great work cannot be stopped. And our God will accomplish His purpose through us. It is our honor to sacrifice all. To give all and to spare no area in this endeavor. Someone say amen. Amen. Next, you may notice that there's a red circle with Esther in the middle of it. You see it? The temple was completed in 516, and the events of Esther took place in between the work of Zerubbabel and the arrival of Ezra in Jerusalem. Saints, the work of God can never truly be stopped. The temporary delays due to opposition, they only serve to magnify Yahweh's sovereignty in the situation. When the people of God awakened to this reality, what had been stalled for about 17 or 18 years was brought to completion in about four years. That means that during our study on Esther, the temple had already been rebuilt. Now the book of Ezra and Nehemiah begins with the Persian decree in 539 or 538. And then moves through a 23-year period in which the temple was rebuilt. It would be easy to miss that in our chapter tonight. Ezra is arriving in Jerusalem almost 80 years after the decree went out. And almost 60 years after the temple was completed. Now our blue box is of course around the second wave. Which is our context tonight in our chapter. Remember tonight Ezra will show up personally in Jerusalem. In the 450s B.C. And you will see in the coming weeks that he begins to address the very soul of the nation. The altar and the temple, which could be thought of as the heart of the nation, they were already in place. One of the things that you will notice in the ministry of Ezra is that the presence of a renewed heart, the presence of a temple, and of an altar do not mean that you don't have significant reform that must continually occur within our soul. That's true. Much like the Torah itself that addressed your heart, Zerubbabel took care to establish God's temple and altar in the heart of Israel. But Ezra, like the Nevi'im, 
Well, he addressed the soul of the nation and warned them about idolatry that was still present within their renewed national state. The characters he played in the life of Ezra is without a doubt one of those high marks that calls all real believers upward. As we go through the chapter, we are confident that you will experience the same weight, the same wonder, and the same renewed determination to win that we have experienced. We will pass on the pattern given to us as a body, just like Ezra did together with the men who went up with him. So next, you should notice the rectangular box on the right of the screen titled Nehemiah. Nehemiah. The focus of Nehemiah's ministry was establishing the security and strength of the nation based on the faithfulness to Adonai in the given historical setting. This is easily related to the purpose of the Ketuvim in general. So Zerubbabel and Joshua established the temple and altar, which are the heart of Israel. Then Ezra addressed Torah observance within the soul of the nation by confronting practices that don't reflect the spirit of the word. And finally, Nehemiah built the wall and the city while encouraging faithfulness to the word in the historical setting that the people were living in. The three waves of return to Israel were also a threefold endorsement of the Tanakh in its threefold function. This ought to remind you of 2 Kings chapter 23. Chapter 23 verse 24 says, Furthermore, Josiah got rid of the mediums and spiritists. Praise God for that. The household gods, the idols, and all the other detestable things seen in Judah and Jerusalem. This he did to fulfill the requirements of the law written in the book that Hilkiah the priest had discovered in the temple of the Lord. Neither before nor after Josiah was there a king like him who turned to the Lord as he did with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his strength in accordance with all the law of Moses. The book of Ezra Nehemiah is about returning to the God of Israel in all aspects of life. This is a threefold return. All your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. You may remember Ezra's from a long line of men who knew what it was like to be entrusted with something of incomparable value and make it a reality on the earth as they diligently studied, personally observed it, and taught others to do the same. Roughly 164 years after Josiah and Hilkiah, Ezra has the good deposit in his hands, and he is bringing it back to Jerusalem. So take a look at our next slide and zero in on our time frame together. I'm going to read the bullet points on the right side of the slide, and I want you to follow along with me because these dates are important. The third siege of Jerusalem that destroyed the temple, say with me, occurred in 586. The Persian, oh, we got some overachievers, B.C., Clarity sake. No, that's great. The Persian conquest of Babylon occurred in 539 B.C. Zerubbabel and his companions returned under the Edict of Cyrus in 539 B.C. or 38. The temple was completed in 516 B.C., which was 70 years after its destruction. Zerubbabel, Haggai, and Zechariah were all working in the 23-year period between the Edict of Cyrus and the completion of the temple. Ezra will arrive in Jerusalem in the 450s B.C. to reform the people and teach them the Torah. And Nehemiah will arrive in Jerusalem 
in the 400s BC to rebuild the wall and city. So let's work down the left side of the slide together. Sound booth, we're going to leave it on the screen. You'll notice that around 538 BC, Zerubbabel and his companions returned to Israel under the edict of Cyrus so that they could begin rebuilding the temple of God. They began working on the temple in 538, but the work stalled for about 17 to 18 years. That's when Haggai and Zechariah stirred the people up into action in about 520. The work was underway again, and as you know, it was completed in the year 516. Yeah. As you slide down the scale through the decades, you'll come to our blue box, which was moved last week and continues our context tonight in chapter 8. Ezra returns to Jerusalem in 458, to be precise, to begin the reformation work necessary for the remnant of the 12 tribes who had already returned to the land. It is important to remember the significance of Ezra's arrival. The last time Israel was spiritually and physically strong as a nation was under the leadership of Josiah and Hilkiah, oh Ezra's great-grandfather. Oh, yeah. This is during a time of renewed commitment to the law that saw the soul of the nation prosper as they heeded the warnings prophesied within the law. Lastly, you will come to Nehemiah in the 440s, during which time the wall, the city, and the strength of the nation were rebuilt. So together we are beginning to appreciate these dates, their significance, and their overall span. When you understand the history of the Bible and the years in which the Bible took place, it begins to speak to you all kinds of things that, that you can glean from the text. We have realized by understanding and appreciating these dates that the book of Ezra and Nehemiah covers a period of about 100 years. That's incredible. And it's solely dedicated to the establishment of the heart, the soul, and the strength of Israel. The Lord is demonstrating his help through Ezra and his comfort through Nehemiah, just as the definitions of their names suggest. The point of the book is to illustrate Adonai's faithfulness to his promises given to his people. This is especially pertinent since we have already seen Adonai's commitment to their discipline in the books of Jeremiah and Chronicles. Have you ever experienced God's commitment to his discipline? It's nice to have his commitment to his help and comfort. Amen. See, this next slide is an overview of the contraction and expansion periods that God's people experienced in order to birth men like Ezra. So our first point here is 47 years of a destroyed temple and Babylonian oppression without relief or plans to build, which occurred from 586 to 539 BC. This was definitely a time of contraction. But then in 539 BC, Cyrus issued a decree that was an encouraging time of expansion. Then, opposition during the reign of Cambyses and earlier years of Darius I caused the work to come to a stop for 17 or 18 years. This was a time of contraction. But then in 520 BC, Darius I issued a decree that was an encouraging time of expansion as they continued the building of the temple once again and were able to see it completed. But then what happens? Complaints during the beginning of the reign of Xerxes caused another time of contraction. But later in the reign of Xerxes, in the time of Esther, the Jewish people were shown extraordinary favor in a time of expansion. Look at this next one. 
Complaints in the early days of Artaxerxes again caused a time of contraction. But later in the reign of Artaxerxes, in 458 BC, the heart of the king is turned by God. And we see a time of extraordinary favor and expansion that birthed men like Ezra and later Nehemiah. You'll remember that Adonai produces men of this kind by baptizing them in adversity and in his holy power. This evening you will see that what started in Ezra will expand to produce capable men who are able to rightly handle the word of truth. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. And it is able to not only stand on its own, but also clear any opposition, if we will but cling to it. This birthing process of a renewed national Israel has had and will have many more difficult moments. But church, it cannot be stopped. You will see the fruitful effect of Ezra's devotion in the lives of the men who he is ministering alongside. All right, let's take this next slide. You guys are right to remember this from last week. This is how great men are birthed. At the bottom of the screen, you see uterine contractions. When the uterus contracts, when a woman is in labor, it causes deceleration in the son's heart rate. If you were to look at this chart and make a judgment, you would say that uterine contractions are bad because they look like they are killing the son. The church, you cannot give birth, you cannot bear fruit without the uterine contractions. They only look like they're going to con- they, they're going to can kill the son or kill you or feel like they're going to kill you, but they are the very thing that brings about a son into the world. Come on. Yeah. Now, we talked about John 16 to highlight this point. It's John 16, 19 through 22. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this, so he said to them, Are you asking one one another what I meant when I said, in a little while you will see me no more? Contraction. And then after a little while you will see me. Expansion. Very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. Contraction. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned to joy. Expansion. A woman giving birth to a child has pain. Contraction. Because her time has come, but when her baby is born, she feels, forgets the anguish because of her joy that the child is born into the world. Expansion! So with you, now is your time of grief. Contraction. But I will see you again, and you will rejoice. Expansion! And no one will take away your joy. Amen. Oh, yeah. Saints, our context is during the reign of Artaxerxes. But we want to remind you that we are currently eight chapters in, as of this evening, into a birthing cycle, a birthing cycle of grief that gives way to joy, a cycle that goes through initial contractions and into times of expansion. These are always the circumstances from which capable men, like Ezra and his associates, are birthed. They cling to the word. And it was impossible for the enemy to overcome. This is exactly what we should expect, exactly what we should ask for, and exactly what we should taunt our enemy with in the midst of difficulty. We do this to see men of Ezra's quality arise out of our own body. We know that this body will produce generations of this kind of man. Because we will not let the desire to give all pass away 
from our midst. Amen. It is our joy to follow Christ and see his kingdom built on the earth. I have a slide for you, one that you should be familiar with, but I am attempting to drive it into my soul as well as yours. Another theme is the joy that is associated with events that have great significance, especially for the religious life of the Jewish community. The laying of the temple foundation is marked by joy. You saw that in Ezra 3, 13, as of the dedication of the temple, Ezra 6, 16, the celebration of the Passover, Ezra 6, 22, the public reading of the law in Nehemiah that is yet coming, and the dedication of the law of Jerusalem in Nehemiah 12. With that said, throughout our studies, it is important to note that the kingdom of God does not advance without opposition. Yeah. Come on. However... This opposition only serves to deepen our dependency upon the covenant name and the nature of the God of Israel. He declares the end from the beginning, and it is never in question. The only real question is, who will rise like Ezra to bring about God's plan on on. earth? And who will do it while in the midst of the cycle defined by contractions and expansions? You see, the name of God is clearly stamped on the book of Ezra Nehemiah and the lives of the men written about within the book. This is not because their lives were free of difficulty, but to the contrary, it was because they clung to the word in the middle of difficulty. This next slide is about the covenant name that they clung to in those difficulties. God is very central to the account of Ezra and Nehemiah. The first reference to God in the book of Ezra is the personal name of God that was given to the Israelites before the Exodus. That is, I am who I am. This name occurs 37 times in Ezra and 17 times in Nehemiah. It is referred to as the Tetragrammaton, or by the short form, Tetragram. This means that the name is made up of four letters in its original Hebrew form, yod heh vav Now, for any believer to successfully negotiate the times of contraction and expansion, it is necessary that they trust in the character, that they trust in the body of work, and that they trust in the reputation of the God of Israel instead of trusting on what they see. Last week, we discovered a striking attribute about Ezra's introduction. You guys ready? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, are you ready? Yeah. Yeah. Clear your throats out a little bit. This Ezra! This Ezra went up from Babylonia. Verses 1 through 6 introduce the character Ezra. They are one sentence in Hebrew with no verb until verse 6. Big sentence. Because the subject Ezra in verse 1 is so far from the verb went up here, the name Ezra is repeated again here in verse 6. The translator needs to pay particular attention here to the introduction and description of this new and major character. Major. The verb went up, which is repeated three times in this section in verses 6, 7, and 9, and again in verse 28 at the end of the chapter, echoes the Edict of Cyrus in Ezra 1.3. It emphasizes the fulfillment of that aspect of his decree. The repetition of the same verb here and the mention of Babylonia clearly links this second part of the book to the first part. So far in this section, 
the writer has identified the new character Ezra and the history that he is recounting. He has shown Ezra's legitimacy as a teacher of the law through the presentation of his lineage. And he has briefly stated what Ezra did. Now a fuller description of the historical person of Ezra is given. Yes. So in addition to the epic introduction of Ezra, we noted his unique position in the Persian court and his personal relationship with King Artaxerxes. Yeah. Let's talk about his expertise on this next slide. Ezra's expertise. Ezra is given a variety of attributes, most of them centering around his ability as a scribe and teacher of the law of the God of heaven. As a scribe, Ezra was possibly a member of the, uh, the uh, Persian bureaucracy. It's kind of a tongue twister, but undoubtedly true. It was a common practice for ancient Near Eastern governments to employ persons trained not only as secretaries or clerks, but as diplomats and lawyers. These individuals were used to interpret documents from subjects and allied peoples. They were also sent on investigative missions to aid the king and his advisors in making decisions. Examples include the seventh century Assyrian scribe Ahikar, that's my best pronunciation of it, and the description of the scribal profession in the Middle Kingdom, Egyptian satire on the trades. Where the profession of the, where the, profession of the scribe is praised as a worthy vocation with benefits that far exceed other types of employment. You guys remember, Ezra had a personal relationship with Artaxerxes. Did you see that last week? Yes. yes. The personal interactions between Ezra and King Artaxerxes highlighted a unique detail regarding what Ezra had in his possession. This is Ezra 714. You're sent by the king and his seven advisors to inquire about Judah and Jerusalem with regard to the law of your God, which is in your hand. Yeah. Do you guys remember that Hilkiah is Ezra's great-grandfather? Yeah, yeah. Do you remember that the last time Israel was strong as a nation was under Josiah when they were reading the law? Yeah, well, the king in verse 14, which we just read, and then again in verse 25, refers not to the law in general, but specifically to the law found within Ezra's hand. Our position is that Ezra had the physical copy of the Torah written by Moses and rediscovered by Hilkiah roughly 164 years before Ezra's time. Ezra guarded and immersed himself in the deposit given to his family three generations prior. His faithfulness in this regard has produced a testimony that is affecting national leaders. And Ezra was personally known by Artaxerxes, and Artaxerxes received instruction from Ezra regarding the grace and the wrath yeah. of God. Yeah. You'll remember we covered last week Ezra 8.22, and we're going to read it again tonight. But in verse 22, Ezra says, I was ashamed. I was ashamed to ask the king for soldiers and horsemen to protect us from enemies on the road. Because we had told the king... The gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks to him, but his great anger is against all who forsake him. Yeah. You need to notice that Ezra told the king. Yeah. To his face, he told the king, the gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks to him, but his great anger is against all who forsake him. Come on. Boldness right there. Yeah. Now on a final note, last week we switched from Ezra 
writing as a historian, you see a lot of third-person pronouns. And we're going to see him, we saw him switch into a personal accounting in verses 27 and 28. Let's read that together. Ezra 7, 27. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king, to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors, and before all the king's mighty officers. I took courage. Come on. You hear the first person? Yeah. I took courage. Yeah. For the hand of the Lord my God was on me, and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. What we're seeing here as we transition from verse 27 of chapter 7 to verse 28 is that Ezra is now relaying his personal testimony of observance to the word. We're reading his journal tonight. He said, I took courage. I gathered leading men to go up with me. Which brings us to our final slide of our review. This slide details the verses that have Aliyah within them. The first being Ezra chapter 1 and verse 3. Any one of his people among you, may his God be with him, and let him go up, Aliyah, to Jerusalem and Judah, and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. Then Ezra 7, 6. This Ezra came up, Aliyah, from Babylon. He was a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. The king had granted him everything he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Then in the very next verse, verse 7, some of the Israelites, including priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, and temple servants, also came up, Aliyah, to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. And finally, in Ezra 7, 28, and who has extended his good favor to me, before the king and his advisors and all the king's powerful officials. Because the hand of the Lord my God was on me, I took courage and gathered leading men from Israel to go up, Aliyah, with me. Guys, Babylon is east-northeast of Jerusalem. But anytime you are going to Jerusalem, you are going up, Aliyah. Ezra and the brave men with him have begun their journey of ascension in obedience to God's commands, as well as their brave journey to ascend in teaching their brothers God's commands. And they cannot and they will not be stopped. Everything that we are about to read is predicated upon the way that these men guarded the word that was entrusted to them. Amen. So at this time, we're going to get into Ezra 8. But before we read the chapter... You know what time it is. It's time for Caleb Brown to stand up and pray for us. Yeah. <laughs> Lord, thank you for tonight, Lord. Thank you for your words, Lord. Would you pour out a spirit of wisdom on us? Lord, a spirit of boldness, Lord. Would you fill us with your fire, Lord? Lord, would you inhabit the praises of your people, Lord, as we boldly approach your throne, Lord? Lord, as we go out with joy, Lord, we thank you for tonight and what you are going to do in this meeting, Lord. Amen. Your wisdom and your spirit on us, Lord. Amen. 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 Pastor Wade, let's start with Ezra 8, verse 1. These are the family heads and those registered with them who came up with me 
from Babylon during the reign of King Artaxerxes. Of the descendants of Phinehas, Gershom. Of the descendants of Ithamar, Daniel. Of the descendants of David, Hattush. Of the descendants of Shechaniah. Of the descendants of Parosh, Zechariah. And with him were registered 150 men. Of the descendants of Pehoth, Moab. Eli Eholnai, son of Zerahiah. And with him, 200 men. Nailed it. Of the descendants of Zatu, Shechaniah, son of Jahaziel, and with him 300 men. Of the descendants of Aden, Ebed, son of Jonathan, and with him 50 men. Of the descendants of Elam, Jeshaiah, son of Athaliah, and with him 70 men. Of the descendants of Shephatiah, Zebediah, son of Michael, and with him 80 men. Of the descendants of Joab, Obadiah, son of Jehiel, and with him 218 men. Of the descendants of Bani, Shlomit, son of Josephah, and with him 160 men. Of the descendants of Bebai, Zechariah, son of Bebai, and with him 28 men. Of the descendants of Asgad, Johanan, son of Hakatan, and with him 110 men. Of the descendants of Adonikam, the last ones, whose names were Eliphet, Jehul, and Shimeiah, and with him 60 men. Of the descendants of Bigbai, Uthai, and Zachar, and with them 70 men. I assembled them at the canal that flows towards Ahava, and we camped there three days. When I checked among the people and the priests, I found no Levites there. So I summoned Eleazar, Ariel, Shemaiah, El Nathan, Jared, El Nathan, Nathan, Zechariah, and Meshulam, who were leaders, and Joyarib, and El Nathan, who were men of learning. And I sent them to Edo, the leader in Pasiphia. I told them what to say to Edo and his kinsmen, the temple servants in Kasaphia, so that they might bring attendance to us for the house of our God. Because the gracious hand of our God was on us, they brought us Sherebiah, a capable man from the descendants of Mali, son of Levi, the son of Israel, and Sherebiah's sons and brothers, 18 men, and Hashabiah, together with Jeshiah, from the descendants of Merari, and his brothers and nephews, 20 men. They also brought 220 of the temple servants, a body that David and the officials had established to assist the Levites. All were registered by name. There, by the Ahava Canal, I proclaimed a fast so that we might humble ourselves before our God and ask Him for a safe journey for us and our children with all our possessions. I was ashamed to ask the king for soldiers and horsemen to protect us from enemies on the road because we had told the king, the gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks to Him. But his great anger is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and petitioned our God about this, and he answered our prayer. Then I set apart twelve of the leading priests, together with Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and ten of their brothers. And I weighed out to them the offering of silver and gold, and the articles that the king, his advisors, his officials, and all Israel present there had donated for the house of our God. I weighed out to them 650 talents of silver, silver articles weighing 100 talents. 100 talents of gold, 20 bowls of gold valued at 1,000 darics, and two fine articles of polished bronze as precious as gold. I said to them, you as well as these articles are consecrated to the Lord. The silver and gold are a free will offering to the Lord, the God of your fathers. Guard them carefully until you weigh them out in the chambers of the house of the Lord in Jerusalem before the leading priests and the Levites and the family heads of Israel. Then the priests and Levites received the silver and gold and sacred articles that had been weighed out to be taken to the house of our God in Jerusalem. 
on the twelfth day of the first month, we set out from the Ahava Canal to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us, and he protected us from enemies and bandits along the way. So we arrived in Jerusalem, where we rested three days. On the fourth day, in the house of our God, we weighed out the silver and gold and the sacred articles in the hands of Merimoth, son of Uriah, the priest. Eleazar, son of Phinehas, was with him, and so were the Levites, Josabad, son of Jeshua, and Noadiah, son of Binui. Everything was accounted for by number and weight, and the entire weight was recorded at that time. <coughs> then the exiles who had returned from captivity sacrificed burnt offerings to the God of Israel, 12 bulls for all Israel, 96 rams, 77 male lambs, and, as a sin offering, 12 male goats. All this was a burnt offering to the Lord. They also delivered the king's orders to the royal satraps and to the governors of Trans-Euphrates, who then gave assistance to the people and to the house of God. So as promised, we will not waste your time tonight, but we certainly have a lot to get to. So let's start with verses 1 and 2, and we'll let Brother Linton pick up reading. These are the family heads and those registered with them who came up with me from Babylon during the reign of King Artaxerxes, of the descendants of Phineas, Gershom, of the descendants of Ithamar, Daniel, of the descendants of David, Hattush, of the descendants of Shechaniah. So before we continue to read the remaining names in the list, we want to highlight two houses within the body of Israel that Ezra starts out with. Two houses that went up, say Aliyah, with him. Ezra was intimately aware of the promises of God for the house of Levi and David. Ezra wrote the book of Chronicles that contains both the certainty of judgment on Israel and the certainty of their continued future as God's glorified nation. Ezra had experienced the judgment Jeremiah prophesied about and was coming out of the Babylonian captivity. Ezra wants you to know that the promises of God have not failed. He also wants you to know uh, who he is bringing with him to aid in the teaching and reforming of national Israel. We have a slide for you. The heads of the two priestly families, Gershom and Daniel, are listed in the first verse. The families are named from their earliest ancestors. Both priestly families are named from the descendants of Aaron, the first priest of the people of Israel. Ezra wants you to know that their descendants are coming up with him. Phinehas was the son of Aaron's third son, Eleazar, and Ithamar was Aaron's fourth son. The third person listed, Petush, was of the line of King David. Amen. We're going to visit a few passages that are about these two amazing family lines, the priesthood and the house of David. Come on. First one, we're going to read Numbers 25, verse 10 through 13. The Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned my anger away from the Israelites. For he was as zealous as I am for my honor among them, so that in my zeal I did not put an end to them. Therefore tell him I am making my covenant of shalom with him. He and his descendants will have a covenant of lasting priesthood because he was zealous for the honor of his God and made atonement for the Israelites. So what we're seeing right here in the first couple verses is that Ezra is letting you know right at the beginning of his list that other sons of Phinehas are with him. Men who are a part of a perpetual priesthood and are zealous for the name of God. 
They went into captivity, and Ezra's saying, that line is making Aliyah with me right back to Jerusalem. Additionally, his record proves that the promise to Phinehas has not died out. He's listing that on purpose. And he's saying, nor would they ever die out at any point in history. Our next passage regarding these lines comes from Psalm 89, starting in verse 30. If his sons forsake my law and do not follow my statutes, if they violate, violate my decrees and fail to keep my commands, I will punish their sin with the rod, their iniquity with flogging. But I will not take my love from him, Amen. nor will I ever betray my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter what my lips have uttered. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness. You think he's serious about this? And I will not lie to David that his line will continue forever and his throne endure before me like the sun. Both the lines of Phinehas and David experienced immense chastisement in the time of captivity. And yet... They were preserved according to the Lord's promise. Hallelujah. It never depended on their faithfulness, but it always depended on the faithfulness of Adonai. Yeah. As he promised, I will never betray my Come faithfulness, on, he says. Ezra records the redeemed descendants of these men who have come with him to reform the soul of the people in accordance with the law of the Lord. So the fact that these two houses have individual promises of an eternal covenant is astounding. What is even more astounding is that Jeremiah prophesied before the captivity that these two houses would be specifically preserved together. Oh, Let's look at Jeremiah 33, 17 through 18. For this is what the Lord says. David will never fail to have a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. Nor... Will the priests, who are Levites, ever fail to have a man to stand before me continually to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain (laughs) offerings, and to present sacrifices? That's awesome. Ezra is recording that these two houses, now repentant and redeemed, are returning to Israel together just as Jeremiah said that they would. Come on. To say the least, Ezra was interested in letting you know God was faithful to his promise. He also wanted you to know the kind of men that he was working alongside. So Ezra and us this evening are just getting started. But before we continue with the coming verses, we want to visit a New Testament writings with you. This is Hebrews 12, verse 28. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. Amen. Thanks, we live in a world that is at war with the promises of God. At every turn, we see wickedness abound and try to pervert the truth. Mm -hmm. However, we know that birth pains and shaking will only serve to birth the kingdom of God that can never be shaken. During these dark days, it is imperative that we personally root our faith in Adonai's unshakable promises, starting with Israel, his people, and his specific promises to the clans of Israel just like the clans of David and Phinehas, the first two verses of what Ezra records. Brother Linton, pick back up in verse 3, part B for me, and take us down through the list. Of the descendants of Perosh, Zechariah, and with them were registered 150 men. 
of the descendants of Pahath Moab, Elioni, son of Zeruiah, and with him 200 men. Of the descendants of Zatu, Shechaniah, son of Jaziel, and with him 300 men. Of the descendants of Aden, Ebed, son of Jehonatan, and with him 50 men. Of the descendants of Elam, Jeshaiah, the son of Athaliah, with, and with him 70 men. Of the descendants of Shephatiah, Zebediah, son of Michael, and with him 80 men. Of the descendants of Joab, Obadiah, son of Jehiel, and with them 218 men. Of the descendants of Bani, Shlomit, son of jo Josephiah, and with them 160 men. Of the descendants of Bebai, Zechariah, son of Bebai, and with them 28 men. Of the descendants of Asgad, Yohanan, son of Hakatan, and with them 110 men. Of the descendants of Adonikim, the last ones, whose names were Eliphalet, Jehuel, and Shemaiah, and with them 16 men. Of the descendants of Bigvi, Uthai, and Zakur, and with them 70 men. So if we had an unlimited amount of time, we could review each of these family lines and their unique significance. But for the sake of the rest of the content that we have for you tonight, we want to stop at highlighting an aspect of these men's character. All 18 of these men are family heads. They're officers, if you will. They're men, that who, they're men who led their own homes. They led their extended family. They led their clans because they had unbending character. Their example is exactly what we are endeavoring to raise up in this house. We will, not cover, we will cover this in greater depth later, but the journey that they are about to undergo on foot is over 900 miles. It's roughly the distance between LCM and the Arising Church if you flew directly there in a straight line. All of this is in a desert environment, though, that was fraught with foes and other dangerous elements. You see, these men were following the Lord with Ezra into a genuinely dangerous situation. Now, I know to many men in this room, an adventure of this kind sounds exciting, if not enticing. Does that sound exciting to you? Yeah. Well, before you answer, we want to fill in a few more details for you. So check out our next slide. Those returning with Ezra. This list consists of the major men, the family heads, who returned as well as the number of those who accompanied them. Most of the people listed were related to the families who had returned previously under Zerubbabel 79 years earlier. Many of the family names in chapter 8, verses 3 through 14, are mentioned in chapter 2, verses 3 through 15. Gershom was a descendant of Phinehas, son of Aaron's third son, Eleazar. And Daniel was descended from Ithamar, Aaron's fourth son. The total number of men who returned was 1,514, including 18 heads of families and their 1,496 other men. With the 258 Levites assembled later, the number came to 1,772. With women and children, the group may have totaled between 4,000 and 5,000. Wow. That's a big number. All the way to the arising church. Even so, this group was much smaller than the near 50,000 on the first return. So 18 leading men that are responsible for a mixed body containing women and children that is 
4,000 to 5,000 through a desert? That means that about 3,200 of the people in the group are women and children in a desert. How was your last road trip with your family? Did you guys make it a week without breaking down into some bickering, maybe? I imagine that there was a fair amount of moments that a member of the family had some concerns about their direction or just wanted to talk one more time about why they were voluntarily joining this endeavor. Turn on the AC. (laughs) It's kind of hot in here, babe. These men had a set of some serious chutzpah, and they led their own homes very well to take on this task. We would all do well to note and emulate their example. Let's continue in verse 15. I assembled them at the canal that flows towards the Ahava and camped there three days. When I checked among the people and the priests, I found no Levites there. Mm. So I summoned Elijah, Ariel, Shemaiah, Elnatan, Jerib, Elnatan, Natan, Zechariah, and Meshulam, who were leaders in Jairi and Elnatan were made of learning. So we'd like to begin this section with a slide to illustrate how the second wave got to this point at the Ahava Canal. This is from the BKC. Beginning their aliyah to Jerusalem. Only a few statements were made about the journey and the arrival. The group left Babylon on the first day of the first month and they left the Ahava Canal on the 12th of the same month. Since they were at the canal three days, The site of their canal encampment was about nine days' travel from Babylon, perhaps 100 to 130 miles away. The total journey was about 900 miles and must have been difficult for a group without a military escort, (laughs) not to mention about 3,200 women and children. However, Ezra was content merely to relate that the hand of our God was on us and that the Lord granted the returnees protection. And we could learn so much from Ezra. So Ezra and this brave group of men have set out on their journey from Babylon on the first day of the first month, now arriving at the Ahava Canal nine days later. They encamped there for three days. Now, we do not have the liberty to teach on the biblical concept of three days in the way that three three days clearly relates to life and death. But you can, however, refer to Decades of recording on the subject in LCM's library, or by any of the pastors, a cup of coffee, and we'll explain it to you. So after journeying for nine days, they are now taking three days to run their inventory of the camp. And they have realized that there is a serious deficiency. They have realized that they are there's a deficiency of Levites. Yep. And they cannot proceed it with their mission. So to illustrate the gravity of their problem, we want to show you a slide from the BKC. You guys ready? Yeah. Yeah. The Levites were to function as teachers of the law. Therefore, they were to have an extremely important role in the reestablishment of the community. The people desperately needed to understand the importance of the law as they faced their situation as returnees from exile. The Levites would have had a difficult time in the new land. Where they were to be involved in the disciplined ministry of temple service. Mm. Perhaps that is why none were present when Ezra and his group were ready to depart from the canal of Ahava, mm. whose location is unknown. 
This canal may have been a tributary of the Euphrates River. Even Zerubbabel had comparatively few Levites on his return. Less than 1.5% of the 49,897 people who returned were Levites. See, Ezra's on a divine commission to teach and perform the men of Israel. At the very first stop on his journey, he stops to evaluate the number of Levites with him. Yeah. Men who have the divine function of teaching the word and preserving the word. Now, I'm certain he knew that he had 3,200 women and children with him. Yep. But he wanted to find out how many Levites he had who could help him. This is especially important when you realize that in the first wave under Zerubbabel, 1.5% of those who returned were Levites. There should have been a proportionate number of Levites returning for every single Israelite. Now, to be very specific about this, there should have been 8.33%, or one out of every 12 returning should have been a Levite. Every Levite in ancient Israel had a special relationship to the rest of Israel. They were to be priests in the stead of every firstborn. The ratio of Levites to Israelites goes way beyond a need for symmetry. It is an actual requirement according to the law and was designed so that every Israelite family would relate to the Levites like a firstborn son. Briefly, we're going to visit some of the events of the first exodus to illustrate why this ratio of Levites to the rest of Israel is so direly important. All right, you guys want to get into the history of the Levites? Yeah. All right, starting in Exodus 12, 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on the throne, to the firstborn of the prisoner. How'd that work? The prisoner couldn't even put the blood on his doorpost. Hmm. Who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. What we're reading about is the final plague against Egypt, and the deliverance of Israel was the plague of the firstborn. This event marks the beginning of the true liberation of Israel, and they are allowed to leave Egypt shortly after this event. The firstborn becomes a sign of deliverance from this point on in the story of Exodus. Let's move to Exodus 13:11, and we're going to continue to read on this. After the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites and gives it to you, as he promised on oath to you and your forefathers, you are to give over to the Lord the first offspring of every womb. All the firstborn males of your livestock belong to the Lord. Redeem with a lamb every firstborn donkey, but if you do not redeem it, break its neck. Redeem every firstborn among your sons. In days to come, when your son asks you, what does this mean? What does this mean? Say to him, with a mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed every firstborn in Egypt, both man and animal. This is why I sacrifice to the Lord, the first male offspring of every womb, and redeem each of my firstborn sons. Verse 16. And it will be like a sign on your hand and a symbol on your forehead that the Lord brought us out of Egypt with his mighty hand. 
the Lord through Moses lays down a lasting ordinance that every firstborn of the womb must be redeemed because it was through the death of the firstborn in Egypt that they were delivered. In a sense, every single firstborn in Israel is a sign. They're a marker, a testimony to the God who delivered them from slavery into the promised land. Yeah. So let's move to Numbers chapter 3 and pick up in verse 39. The total number of Levites counted at the Lord's command by Moses and Aaron according to their clans, including every male a month old or more, was 22,000. The Lord said to Moses, Count all the firstborn Israelite males who are a month old or more and make a list of their names. Take the Levites for me in place of all the firstborn of the Israelites. There it is. And the livestock of the Levites in place of all the firstborn of the livestock of the Israelites. I am the Lord. Keeping in mind that every firstborn is a sign of deliverance that you know already belongs to God, as stated in Exodus 13, we see here that the Lord provides the Levites in place of every firstborn of Israel. The Levites then became the sign that the community was departing from slavery and judgment, Egypt, and heading towards the promised land. Hmm. Also note that if the Levites were not provided, then every firstborn would be required to leave his home and property to go work at the temple. Let's continue reading in Numbers 3. So Moses counted all the firstborn of the Israelites, as the Lord commanded it. The total number of firstborn males, a month old or more, listed by name, was 22,273. The Lord also said to Moses, Take the Levites in place of all the firstborn of Israel, and the livestock of the Levites in place of their livestock. The Levites are to be mine. I am the Lord. To redeem the 273 firstborn Israelites who exceeded the number of the Levites, collect five shekels for each one, according to the sanctuary shekel, which weighs 20 gerahs. Give the money for the redemption of the additional Israelites to Aaron and his sons. So in Moses' day, there were a 273 firstborn discrepancy between the number of Israelites and Levites. This 273 difference was not considered close enough or to be considered an acceptable amount. All 273 sons that did not have a Levite to take their place had to be redeemed with a price. Hold on to that as we move to Numbers 8, verse 9. You guys still breathing? Yeah. Listen to Numbers 8, 9, and 11. Bring the Levites to the front of the tent of meeting and assemble the whole Israelite community. You are to bring the Levites before the Lord, and the Israelites are to lay their hands on them, the Levites. Aaron is to present the Levites before the Lord as a wave offering from the Israelites so that they may be ready to do the work of the Lord. Each Levite was an offering from Israel, from the people of Israel, to the Lord instead of their own firstborn sons. That means that each Levite was considered as the firstborn of the family, an acceptable offering unto God. Are y'all putting this together? There are two major items to take from this. Firstly, 
to have less than the required number of Levites was too short God in their offering. They had to have an appropriate amount of Levites. Secondly, to have less than the required number of Levites was to short the familial pastoring role of the Levites to the nation of Israel. True. That role had to be filled, and God had appropriate proportions. Ezra and the men with him are on a mission to teach and reform Israel. And the Levites, as stand-ins for the firstborn, would be the primary way that this would occur. The Levites would be ministering to the families of Israel as a member of their family. Did you catch earlier that the firstborn was a sign of deliverance from Egypt? Well, the the Levites became the sign that the whole community was leaving Egypt and slavery and judgment and that they were headed to the promised land. And that sign was a part of their own family. The Levites are a sign that the whole family is leaving the judgment of God because they are ministering. The Levites would be ministering to the families of Israel as a member of their family, not another family, in the very same way that a natural firstborn would lead the entire family. When Ezra said that there were no Levites in their camp, as in zero, nada, zilch, efez, nothing, this poses a serious problem for a man called to bring teaching and reform to Israel because the Levites are a sign for the family. No matter how stellar Ezra was in and of himself, his mission could never be accomplished without raising up Levites who would join him in the work. So before we read a final passage on this subject, we need to begin to consider some of the practical ramifications of this concept laid down in the Torah. If Israel was to have no less than 8.33% Levites to the rest of the Israelites and were required to pay the difference if there was one, what does our body look like? in comparison to this ratio? It's a good question, right? We're glad you asked the question. This body is made up of roughly 65 families. And we have five full-time pastoral families here locally at LCM. That means that we are just now, like as of this last year, at 7.69% pastoral families to the main corporate body. Guys, we're saying this to say, We've made some great strides in the past year. If this church is going to grow in numbers, though, in the days ahead, what else must we grow in? We got to grow in Levites, church. Now consider the mission that we have been entrusted with. Namely, that we are to produce 12 springs that feed 70 palm trees. With that in mind, how many more Levites must we raise from our midst if we are going to hold to the biblical model. If we are in the days of raising up officers, training Levites for the work that is ahead, from this room we know with certainty that Levites will rise to meet the call of God. This will require every family to look introspectively at their daily affairs, learn to put the kingdom first and foremost in their lives. Levites had no property of their own. Their profession and their daily duties were not their own. Levites had no possession in Israel except the Lord himself. By definition, their lives were not their own. 
What must be accomplished in your home now to meet this historical and biblical definition of a Levite? We are confident that you will rise to meet the call. Amen. Ezra would not proceed without Levites, and neither will we. On a related note, on your own time, you should consider what ratio of Levites to main corporate body, what that means for the average megachurch in this city. One that has one name on the sign for a church of 40,000 people. It's simply not possible that one man relates to the body like a firstborn son. That's true. But we, however, want to spend our time on the biblical model. Yeah. Amen. So 1 Chronicles 23, 28 will be our last passage that we turn to on this subject. But you should know in advance that this is during the time frame of David's final years as Israel prepares to transition from tabernacle service to temple service. Yep. As a minor note for you students who are interested, the men in Ezra 8 are intense as they journey to the permanent temple structure in Jerusalem. But we don't have time to cover the shadows and types or second Exodus themes this evening, so we're going to pick up in 1 Chronicles 23, verse 28. Duty of the Levites was to help Aaron's descendants in the service of the temple, to be in charge of the courtyards, the side rooms, the purification of all sacred things. I'm telling you, you're going to want to remember that. And the performance of other duties at the house of God. It's worth noting that Ezra is a priest descendant of Aaron, his task requires that Levites are there to help him. Yeah. Additionally, they were not journeying to Jerusalem empty-handed. They had sacred things with them. The Levites were the ones ordained by God to carry and purify the sacred things. It would not be possible to complete the mission without Levites. But together as one unit, it was impossible Come that on. they would be stopped from completing the mission. Did you notice that verse 16 listed specific men who were sent to go find the Levites? I'm going to read that to you again. So I summon Eleazar, Ariel, Shemaiah, Elnathan, Jerib, Elnathan, Nathan, Zechariah, Meshulam, who were leaders, and Jorib and Elnathan, who were men of learning. Thanks, I want to tell you tonight that it takes leaders and men of learning, or divine wisdom, if you will, to raise up Levites. We have a slide for you from a couple of our favorite lexicons. So these are the two groups sent by Ezra to go find out Levites. The first one, leaders. In Hebrew, Old Testament 7218, this is Rosh. This is expressed for the notion of a chief of a family as chief officer of the divisions of Israel. Men who led their homes. Yep. Yeah. Then we have men of learning. This is Strong's number 995. It's Mevinim. means to cause to understand, to give understanding, to teach, to show oneself discerning or attentive, to consider diligently, to teach, to instruct. Church, what we want to illustrate through these two groupings is that the work of God has always been accomplished by men who are leaders, who are chief officers in their own homes first, Amen. and men who have understanding by the living and active word of God. This is what we are building. Men who are able to teach and who can go raise up other men like them. And it all starts in our homes and in the word. 
starts with us being chief officers in our homes and being men of understanding, like the men Ezra sent, by diligently searching out the scriptures. That's how we will find the Levites to assist us. Amen. Let's pick up in verse 17, brother. And I sent them to Edo, the leader in Cassiopeia. I told them what to say to Edo and his kingdom, the temple servants in Cassiopeia, so that they might bring attendance to us for the house of our God. So we have three slides for you on this verse. The first is interesting, but it might not be conclusive to us tonight. The second is of the highest importance to us tonight. And the third, it's going to blow your mind. Let's start with the first slide. Cassiphia. Look at the highlighted portion of the slide here. This is the city that they went to find these Levites. Some have thought the name to be connected with Kesef, silver or money. While we may not be certain where Kasifia is on a map today, it is certainly noteworthy that wherever it is located, the name means silver or money or treasury. In the entire province of Babylon, the Levites ended up in a place called silver, a place called treasury, demonstrating to the reader that the redemptive themes in Ezra are of extraordinary proportion. Let's hit slide number two. So what Ezra told the men going to find the Levites is far better than our dynamic translations would lead you to believe. Which is why we're going through these slides so you catch the revelation. Here's the interlinear. Notice the highlighted portion. It says, I placed and their mouth in words. In the original language, Ezra did not just tell them what to say. He placed Devarim in their mouths. Ezra, who held in his hands the book of the law, the original book that was preserved through three generations of his family, this book he placed into their mouths. The very word. If we, like Ezra, are intent on raising up Levites, we must learn what it is to guard the good deposit, to hold on to what was entrusted Observe it and teach it to others. These 11 men who, are, uh, who led their homes and had insight or understanding that came from the word, they were armed with the very words of God in their mouths. Yeah. Ezra put the word into their mouths, into the mouths of these 11 men, and then sent them to go raise up Levites who would join the work of God. Come on. Before we get to our third slide, because I don't mind teasing you just a little bit. We're going to read Mark 13 on the subject of the word of God being in your mouth. I'm picking up in verse 9. You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogue. Mm. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. Well, this was certainly true for a man named Ezra. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Wherever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time. For it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Thanks, I want to tell you far much time has been spent worrying about how to present the gospel or how to approach the transmission of truth. It is time that we in this house begin to focus on what we are transmitting and what has been placed in our mouth Come and on. let the Spirit of God Come draw on. it out. Come on. These men had the real, the raw word of God in their mouths. 
And it was all that they needed to call Levites to the service. Amen. If you are brimming with the word and swimming in the spirit, you need not fear what you will say on that day. Let the word loose. Let it be unhindered by your sensibilities, unbridled by your fear, and it will soon clear itself of your enemies and the enemies of the gospel. That's a good word. word. In fact, you will find that when you live in this manner, you personally will make Levites everywhere that you go. Are you ready to get to your third slide? Are you ready for this to get even better? Let's put up our next slide. The book of Deuteronomy. The Hebrew name for this book, following the ancient Jewish practice of naming a book by its opening line, is Devarim. The words for the book began with, these are the words, Ele Devarim. Are you starting to make some connections with what Ezra actually did? He said, I placed in their mouths Devarim. Hmm. Well, as many of you know, the title of the book of Deuteronomy in Hebrew is, in fact, Devarim. Ezra is actually recorded as putting not just words into the mouths of these 11 men, not just saying, I told them what to say. He's saying, I put Deuteronomy in their mouths. Now, this may seem coincidental or confusing to a non-Hebrew speaker, but to those that Hebrew is their first language, you would recognize that the word Devarim could take many different forms. The text could have said, I put divrei in their mouths, but it doesn't. And it could be expected for it to take different forms, but it doesn't. It says devarim. However, the word that Ezra put in the mouths of the 11 men was devarim, as in the exact same consonants and vowel markings that the title for the book of Deuteronomy is written in. To the original reader, this would serve to emphasize the fact that Ezra carried the actual book of Deuteronomy. And that he transferred it by way of discipleship to those who were following him and raising up Levites. Come on, church. You want to call out Levites to assist you in the work? You're going to have to raise up disciples and put the Torah in their mouths. Raise them up to do it. Hey, let's pick up in verse 18. Because the gracious hand of our God was on us, they brought us Sherebiah, a capable man Whoa. from the descendants of Mahli, son of Levi, the son of Israel, and Sherebiah's sons and brothers, 18 men. Sherebiah is said to be a capable man who descended from Mali. And Chronicles, which was also written by Ezra, records Mali as a descendant of the Merorite clan. These men were originally responsible for the hard and heavy work of carrying the tabernacle structure. Under the leadership of David, new roles were established for them to engage in once the permanent temple structure was built that would no longer be moved. Although no longer carrying the tabernacle around in the desert, it would be expected that these Levites understood hard work and they were capable men. It is noteworthy that Ezra says that the hand of God was on us meaning in a plural sense, because these Levites came to aid in the work. Just as 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16 says, but we have the mind of Christ. Plural. Ezra and the men with him are all experiencing the grace of God together as they join with these hard-working Levites being added to the work. 
So it's clear for many reasons that Sherebiah was capable. Say capable. Capable. In addition to the Mararites being accustomed to hard work, you can see that Sherebiah is also leading those under him well. His house and his brothers have all joined in the work. So let's look at the Hebrew word for capable. We have a slide for you. This Hebrew word is sahel, a masculine noun meaning intelligence, good sense. This intelligence is more than just mere book knowledge or learning about a particular subject. Wow. It has a greater significance and means insight or understanding. This insight is a gift from God. And God holds the freedom to give it or take it away whenever he chooses. This, the result from having this intelligent insight is that it gives a person patience wow. and wins praise from others. Yeah. Only fools despise this intelligence. Wow. So Sherebiah was not considered capable because of his strength or his great learning. Rather, he was considered capable because he possessed the word and it made him wise in a supernatural yeah. way. Come on. Yeah. Man, if you want to be capable, it all begins with the word that has been entrusted to you and the way you steward it, beginning with your own home. This capable man joined the work and caused the existing body to praise God for it. Our cry should be that Adonai would make us all into such capable men and that he would teach us to go find more of them. The work of God depends on it, church. So we obviously have to pick up the pace. But 2 Timothy 2, 1 through 2 in the Amplified, it's just too good not to read. So you, my son, be strong, in parentheses, strengthened inwardly, as in spirit, in the grace, spiritual blessing, that is to be found only in Christ Jesus. And the instructions which you have heard from me, along with many witnesses, transmit and entrust as a deposit to reliable and faithful men. Who will be competent and qualified to teach others also. Saints, can I tell you that I have known many book smart people who had zero understanding? Can I tell you that I've met many physically strong or hardworking men who had zero understanding? In this house, we are raising up men who are capable in the divine sense. Capable to lead their homes and teach others with what has been entrusted to them. Amen. Brother Geddes in verse 29. Amen. And Hashabiah, together with Jesaiah, from the descendants of Merari, and his brothers and nephews, 20 men. They also brought 220 of the temple servants, a body that David and the officials had established to assist the Levites. Mm-hmm. All were registered by name. So on a historical note, all these men were registered by name because they were pure. And they had remained distinct and they were fit to perform their functions. Amen. That's how they knew their registry. Yeah. On a broader note, Ezra Nehemiah is about a new beginning for Israel. And each of the names he called, listen to this. Each of the names he called are currently in a desert. But they have his words and will reach the promised land as their inheritance. On a practical note, capable men who abandon everything for the call have a way of inspiring the same devotion in others. Yes. With Sherebiah, Sherebahiah, were other Merarites, their families, and 220 temple servants. The effects of rightly handling what has been entrusted to you 
can never be overestimated. Verse 21. There, by the Ahava Canal, I proclaim the fast, so that we might humble ourselves before God and ask him for a safe journey for us and our children with all our possessions. I was ashamed to ask the king for soldiers and horsemen to protect us from enemies on the road, because we had told the king, the gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks to him, Ooh, but his great anger is against all who forsake him. Oh my goodness, the character of Ezra here. It's one that we deeply desire to emulate in ever-increasing ways. The difficult situation that he was in with probably over 3,000 women and children. This would have been easily avoidable if he had held back his testimony. Of course, if he had held back his testimony about the grace and wrath of God, he also would have missed this time of expansion and Nehemiah would probably have missed it as well. Ezra was afraid to shame the Most High with fearful behavior. Ezra was afraid to shame the Most High with carnal manipulation. Ezra was afraid to shame the Most High by fighting for what he needed or what the children needed who were with him. Ezra was afraid to shame the Most High by being manipulated with the desires of the women present within the group. Or the extended family there within the group. Ezra was afraid to shame the Most High by relying on the wisdom of men rather than the wisdom from the hand of his God. Ezra was, however, not ashamed to humble himself before God, to fast, and to pray. In this room tonight, have you failed to be ashamed of the things God is ashamed of in your own life? In this room tonight... Are you ashamed of the things that God values? Like humbling yourself publicly. Like fasting. Like prayer. You know, Ezra handled this situation in a very similar fashion to a Benjamite who lived a few decades before him. You'll find him in Esther chapter 4, verse 1. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. The Jewish people were aware that a lack of reverence for God's law is what caused their captivity. During this time period, men like Mordecai, Mordecai, as well as Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah, were all faithful Jews bringing people back to faithfulness and reverence to the law of God. Yeah. So we want to show you an excellent example of this kind of faith during the Maccabean period. You should remember the slide from our Esther teaching. This is Josephus' Antiquities of the Jews. And when Judah saw their camp and how numerous their enemies, for he persuaded his own soldiers to be of good courage and exhorted them to place their hopes of victory in God and to make supplication to him according to the custom of their country. What country is that? Israel. Clothed in sackcloth, and to show what was their usual habit of supplication in the greatest dangers, and thereby to prevail with God to grant you the victory over your enemies. Thanks to Maccabean period is much like the setting of Ezra, although it occurs slightly later in history. In the slide you saw the armies of Judas, Maccabeans, lying on humble repentance rather than their armaments, so that Adonai could give them the victory. 
It is telling that the Maccabean period followed Ezra's time because the law of God that Ezra had so faithfully preserved showed them how to operate in similar circumstances. They looked to his life. Ezra led by example in fasting and in repentance. Notice what he does not do. Ezra, just like Mordecai in her Esther studies, does not plan, does not manipulate, doesn't capitulate with the desires of the people there. This reminds us so much of Hebrews 5. Verse 7. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. See, Ezra, like Mordecai, valued repentance more than an opportunity to plan or manipulate or lower the great name of his king. (laughs) Considering this ought to bring genuine conviction to your hearts as it is done to ours. Do you value prayer and repentance as much as you do the opportunity to make your argument? Do your actions appeal to Adonai with greater intensity than they do men? We think that Ezra, just like Mordecai, shows extraordinary faith in this instance and sets an example for the exiles of what real men do when faced with seemingly insurmountable odds. So before we move to verse 23, as a final note on this topic, read this next slide with us. Fasting and repentance. In Matthew 6.16, Jesus says, When you fast, these words would probably call to mind the fast for the Day of Atonement. For most first century Jewish listeners, this entire day is focused on personal inventory and repentance before God. In fact, it could be said that for the rabbis, fasting is nearly synonymous with repentance. One returns home to God by denying oneself, subjugating the strong will for human self-gratification over to the divine will for holy living. As you guys engage with what is happening here, Ezra has declared a fast in order to set an example in humility and repentance. And the people joined him in this humbling of their souls and in repentance. This is a great precursor to deliverance. And Ezra is leading while the nation is following his example. Let's move on to verse 23. So we fasted and petitioned our God about this. And he answered our prayer. This raises a question. How did Ezra know that their prayers were answered? Was there a sign? No. Was there a dream? No. Did the difficulty of the journey ahead suddenly change? No. Ezra knew God answered his prayer because he made it to Jerusalem. Oh. He's recording these events later in his life after he saw God bring him through the journey. Wow. That means he believed that God heard him before he saw anything. Come on now. That means he stood up and did what Adonai said to do in advance of seeing that deliverance. Oh. Christian, we must gain a lesson from this. Ezra was not waiting around for a sign or change of circumstance. He humbled himself, prayed, and did what God said to do. That is how we know God heard his prayer. That's how he knows God heard his prayer. In light of that, we're going to read Exodus 3. Exodus 3, verse 12. And God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you. That it is I who have sent you. Of course, this is Moses in the context. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Amen. Thanks, I love you. 
Many Christians think very highly of Gideon for obvious reasons. Great story with the 300 men. Then they wrongly assume that his fleece arrangement should be considered faith. When you realize that Moses, who led all Israel out of Egypt through a desert, was given this encouragement from the Lord. This will be your sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Look, to put it succinctly, you need to quit poor-mouthing it before God, asking him to give you more confirmations, more affirmations, and more stupid reasons to obey what he has already told you to do. (laughs) Moses' sign was that when he had done what God said to do, he would then know it was God who had sent him all along. Christian fleece faith is no faith at all. Humbling yourself, fasting and praying with other men that the commandment of the Lord would not be stopped, well, that is faith. Ezra is referred to as a second Moses for many, many reasons. Ezra is leading, redeemed Israelites out of captivity through a desert. And his sign is that he made it to Jerusalem, just as the Lord told him to. Ezra reasoned within himself that if he aligned his will with the Most High's will, that it would be impossible for him to fail in accomplishing the mission of God. Saints, should our prayer lives be shaping up? Yeah. Yeah. I can tell you it's personally shaping up our prayer lives. Yeah, it is. Look, as we continue to move at a brisk pace, we're going to explore this topic further. John 4, 34 through 38. My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to start the work. No! No, to finish his work. Don't you have a saying? It's still four months until harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe with for harvest. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Look, as a body, we have reaped the benefits of others' hard work for years now. Our great king is calling us to be harvesters and raise up harvesters because the harvest is ripe. Jesus said his food was to finish the work of his father. Not start it, not get entangled, finish. We have been given a great deal of food without work, as a blessing, and that should spur us on. But no man in the room should think that we cannot, that we can now draw back our hand. We must finish. The call of our great king is to finish what we have set our hands to. Our food is to finish the work. Now, we're prepared to take this next slide slowly so that no one gets lost. This is actually an in-depth analysis of verse 23. By an 11th century rabbi. Complicated. It's pretty in-depth. It's. Do you guys? Can you guys read that from where you are there? Like his commentary? So how did he know his prayer was accepted? What's that next line? For we arrive safely in Jerusalem. Oh, okay. So what God told him was completed. It was done, and that is how he knew that his prayer was answered. Our older brothers have understood this concept since at least the time of Moses. And it is time that we, we charismatic Christians, learn what it is to operate 
in the miraculous. The supernatural sign. The miraculous sign is us completing the work of the Father. So Psalm 119 says it this way. This may be very familiar to you. Psalm 119, verse 9. Who wrote Psalm 119? It says, how can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. Church, the way you keep your way pure is to live according to the word. What you do, uh, when you do what the word commands, then you have purity. You cannot wait to be pure or more accurately feel pure to obey the word and do what it says. When you obey what the word says, you are pure. Mm. Turn this another way for you in the ESV. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. See, Ezra, who Peyton mentioned, wrote Psalm 119, understood the miraculous sign needed was for men to guard the words of God entrusted to them. You are pure when you work, as he's told you to. Brother, pick up in verse 24 through 29 for me, and we'll continue on. Then I set apart twelve of the leading priests, together with Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and ten of their brothers. And I weighed out to them the offering of silver and gold, and the articles that the king, his advisors, his officials, and all Israel present there had donated for the house of our God. I weighed out to them 650 talents of silver. Silver weighing 100 talents, 100 talents of gold, 20 bowls of gold valued at 1,000 barracks, and two fine articles of polished bronze as precious as gold. I said to them, you as well as these articles are consecrated to the Lord. Come on. The silver and gold are a free will offering to the Lord, the God of your fathers. Guard them carefully until you weigh them out in the chambers of the house of the Lord in Jerusalem before the leading priests and the Levites and the family heads of Israel. Thanks. We work really hard to make sure there's something for everyone in these teachings. Once again, the limitations of time prevent us from discussing everything that we would like to cover with you. We want to give you a few insights to chew on before drilling down into our major topic together. Is that all right? Yes. Yes. To start with, the 12 leading priests are men who led other leaders. This may very well be the foundation for the type of ministry the 12 apostles performed, i.e., raising up ambassadors of Christ all over the biblical world. The one association model is based on these principles in 12 springs or 12 domestic churches and the need for even a priest to have someone who ministers to him. In in your own time, you can study in Ephesians 4, the book of Numbers, the book of Leviticus, and the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, and it will yield for you a greater understanding of the fivefold ministry. Look, on another note, the basis for Paul's words in Romans 15, 26 through 27 likely have their basis in verse 25 of this chapter. It says that the Jews donated this offering to send to Jerusalem. <clears throat> See, the Jews have made it a practice of contributing to the work regardless of their physical locality, and this same teaching continues on to this very day. All Israel felt a physical obligation to the work of God, regardless of where they happen to be currently living in the diaspora. This same model has and will continue to bless us as we all walk it out practically. 
Let's read verses 28 and 29 again, though, for continuity's sake. I said to them, You as well as these articles are consecrated to the Lord. The silver and gold are a free will offering to the Lord, the God of your fathers. Guard them carefully until you weigh them out in the chambers of the house of the Lord in Jerusalem before the leading priests and the Levites and the family heads of Israel. You see, the Levites are transporting about 30 tons of silver and gold through a precarious 900-mile journey. In today's inflated prices, that's about $131 million worth. They definitely needed to guard it carefully, but as you remember from last week, Psalm 119, verse 72, written by Ezra, says that the word they carried was more precious than gold and silver. You see, in light of the priority Ezra placed on the word, he carried through a literal desert to get it as far as you. How precious is what you have been given? Did you notice that what was entrusted to these Levites would be weighed out at the end of their journey? There was a weighing out at the beginning and then a weighing out at at the end. Well, let's begin in Paul's epistle to Timothy and look at that. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 20. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and in so doing have wandered from the faith. Grace be with you. This is how Paul ended his first epistle to his young disciple, Timothy, who had been entrusted with a weighty deposit. He commands him to turn away from godless chatter, turn away from opposing ideas, turn away from false knowledge, because these things steal from the weight of what has been entrusted to you. We all will give an account for the exact weight of what we've been entrusted with. Our intention this evening is to ensure that no family comes up light on that good deposit. Let's go to 2 Timothy 1, verse 14. 2 Timothy 1, verse 14. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. As you learned on Sunday, the journey that we are on requires supernatural help. This race cannot be finished well without the Holy Spirit empowering us beyond our own flesh, beyond our own ability. Church, we serve a king who has entrusted you with a weighty deposit, and we must prove faithful to guard it until it's weighed out in his temple. Luke 16, 10 says this, Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. Come on now. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, Who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? Those of you who have been through Acts class should recognize the usage of Calvary Comer. The light matter is your wealth in this world. (laughs) However, if you will not use your wealth, the light matter, for the kingdom, then you are not worthy of being entrusted with true riches. But you, church, you, church, have proven trustworthy with your wealth Time and time again. And we are eager for true riches to be credited to your account. This only comes by guarding what you've been given. Proving faithful with what you've been given. Faithfulness in your home is what qualifies you to share in the much that is the riches of the kingdom 
and an outward way. Now, Paul's going to continue in 2 Timothy, and we have to look at it. 2 Timothy 2, 15 through 16. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Does anyone remember the word spudazo? Spudazo. What Paul is saying is for you to trouble yourself, like Job, to literally trouble yourself to handle the word, the good deposit that he's given you. Well, trouble yourselves. What sacrifice does the life of Job leave out? His home? His career? His family? His children? It leaves no sacrifice out. Now, if you buy Pastor Peyton pigeon-punching Parsons a cigar, he can walk you through the Greek, but you should know that study, observance, and teaching are more than applied in the same exact order as Ezra lived it out. Oh, you want to hear how the writer of Hebrews said it? Hebrews 5, verse 13. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. We are raising a house of the mature, church, made through constant use in the word, in the good deposit, know how to use it well. There's no other way to mature other than a constant engagement and a constant use of that engagement in the word. Many who are qualified to be teachers because of their faithful guardianship attain that qualification in no other way. Our Acts 2 students should remember (coughs) this next passage and its implications. It's 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 4. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Say first importance. First importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day according to the The scriptures. scriptures. Chapter 15 is Paul's dissertation on the gospel of Christ. He begins by quoting from the Pirkei Avot. And we have a slide for you on that. So this is Pirkei Avot. Notice the language that is being utilized here. Moses received. Did you hear Paul say, what I received? Moses received the Torah from Sinai and gave it over to Joshua. So on and so forth from Joshua to the elders all the way through the men of the great assembly. Each generation received and passed on something. Well, Paul, about the gospel of Jesus Christ, says, what I received, I made sure that I passed it on to you. I did not leave you without what Christ gave me. The point is that Paul recognized he had been given a deposit and it was his job to faithfully transmit it to the next generation. What he received, he passed on just as had it been given to him. Ezra and the Levites in our chapter tonight. With him, they had laid a foundation of this kind of teaching where they received and passed on that men called the Zagot would then carry on all the way up to the time of Christ with Hillel and Shammah. Pairs of teachers who carried the things of real value and made sure that they reached the next 
generation. Hallelujah. If Ezra ensured that the word of God made it to Jerusalem and eventually to you, Goim, what kind of responsibility do we have now to do the same? Yeah. See, you were entrusted with something of greater weight and value than gold or silver. But for most of our Christian lives, we had no idea that we were required to prove faithful with it. That's true. But we're awakening to that reality. Hallelujah. Now is the time for us to go up, to make Aliyah like Ezra. Now is the time for us to gather Levites like the men who are with him. Now is the time for us to rise to meet the high call of God and prove faithful with what has been deposited into us. Brother, verse 30. Then the priests and Levites received the silver and gold and sacred articles that had been weighed out to be taken to the house of our God in Jerusalem. Man, so silver and gold were not the only thing the Levites were carrying. They also transported sacred articles. First Chronicles 23-28 that we read earlier said, The duty of the Levites was to help Aaron's descendants in the service of the temple of the Lord to be in charge of the courtyards, the side rooms, the purification of all sacred things and the performance of other duties at the house of God. Church, sacred things are of no value if they are not pure. Ezra understood that he had been entrusted with transporting the sacred things of God and he needed Levites if those sacred things were to be of any value. Mm. The items themselves, without the Levites, No value. In ways too numerous to recount, this relates to our daily living. We have been entrusted with sacred things of unparalleled value. That's true. How quickly do sacred tasks in our marriage, our work, our fellowship, our parenting, and our outward ministry become impure? If you can't answer that question, it's because you're still blind to how impure you really are. But... Praise God for the Levites. Their job is to purify the sacred things. And we want you to know it is your job as well, church. Standing for righteousness in your own thoughts, your own heart, your own family is the beginning of this purification process. When we stand in God's assigned function and will, it is impossible for the enemy to overcome us because the Levites... The people, you and the sacred things are all getting repurified together. Yeah. Let's pick up in verse 31. On the twelfth day of the first month, we set out from the Ahava Canal to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us, and he protected us from enemies and bandits along the way. So we arrived in Jerusalem, yeah. where we rested three days. On the fourth day, in the house of our God, we weighed out the silver and gold and the sacred articles into the hands of Merimoth, son of Moriah, the, the priest. Eliezer, son of Phineas, was with him. And so were the Levites, Jezebel, son of Jeshua, and Noadiah, son of Benjamin. How many things? Everything. Everything. How many things? Everything. Everything Everything was accounted for by number and and weight. And the entire weight was recorded at that time. Ooh, guys, nothing was impossible for Ezra and the men with them. Because they aligned themselves with God and they did not wait to see the outcome of their prayers before they chose to obey. Everything was accounted for that God has entrusted them with. As there was a three-day time of evaluation at the beginning of this journey. 
There was also a three-day three day time of rest at the end to reflect on the journey. We would all do well to implement similar practices. It is worth taking the time to see if we have the Levites we need, if we have sufficiently equipped ourselves for the task Christ has already called us to. If we, like Ezra, should find ourselves in need of greater capacity to carry the call, then we should ask him who gives wisdom generously to help us to mature. He will give it to us in his faithfulness. Our God is interested in your success. He's not interested in your failure. He will cause the man who knows his state to grow if he asks and if he repents, just like Ezra and the man in his day and age did, the man of the word. Then we will all glory in the accomplishment of the mission together because we know who made us capable of completing it. Come on. The entire time. Amen. So Matthew 13, 52 is a familiar passage to many of you. And yet, in light of what we are studying, its significance only grows. Matthew 13, 52. And he said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of the house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Did you catch that it said every scribe? Every scribe. What profession did Ezra have? He was a scribe, or some translations put it, a teacher of the law. Ezra kept the pattern and built upon what was given to him. Let me ask you, in eternity, will you be able to show you held on to, guarded, protected all of the old treasure and added to it? Sunday we learned that the Lord does not need and no one will appreciate your innovations, modifications, or revisions of absolute truth. Our actual need is to be faithful to the deposit already given so that we can begin to build upon it. Amen. Can anyone in the room really say that you have faithfully guarded all that has already been entrusted to you? If it were set on scales here for everyone to see, up here on stage, if it was all put on scales, how confident would you be that you carried out all so that not one ounce of gold would be missing whenever you had to give an account for it at the temple? The good deposit is not light in this house. Our application of it often has been, though. Tonight, we're choosing to reapply this what we have already been given so that we can transmit it to the next generation yes. with interest. Amen. Amen. Pick up at verse 35. Then the exiles who had returned from captivity sacrificed burnt offerings to the God of Israel. Twelve bulls for all Israel. Amen. Ninety-six rams, seventy-seven male lambs, and as a sin offering, twelve male goats. All this was a burnt offering to the Lord. They also delivered the king's orders to the royal satraps and to the governors of Trans-Euphrates, who who then gave assistance to the people and to the house of God. So almost as miraculous as Ezra's journey, we've managed to get to the last verse with nine minutes left on our clock. Come on. Frankly, we're a bit dumbfounded because we weren't certain we were able to do it about 30 minutes ago. With that in mind, there are a few things that we would like to point out to you some things we want to forecast for you in the weeks ahead, and a few things that we've taken from this evening that we'd like to reemphasize. 
Firstly, all three waves are accompanied by sacrifices of a similar nature to what you just read. Should be a shocker to you at this point that there are 12 bulls, 12 male goats, because all Israel is there. They're all present. They're all participating in it. They're all there in every return. In fact, when there wasn't the representation of Levites, there was supposed to be. Ezra made sure Come that on. they were there before he went. See, the book of Ezra and Nehemiah clearly displays the seeds of restoration for national Israel, and it will be fulfilled in a greater sense in the days ahead. Amen. Secondly, Ezra is finally in Jerusalem after a 900-mile journey filled with expansions and contractions and all of the wonderful things that 3,200 women and children that don't belong to you can give you. When they arrived, they faithfully delivered the king's orders. You should remember from last chapter that the king's orders were to obey the law of the God of heaven Amen. and the king's orders. is actually written in his document and he is handing it to the officials. Hallelujah. What a better picture of transmitting the good deposit can you get? May the testimony about us be the same way. Yeah. Look, we want to briefly give you some scope in Ezra and plant a few seeds for later chapters. Firstly, in chapter 7... We saw Ezra's relationship with the Word, where he studied it, he observed it, and was committed to teaching it. And we saw the commission of the king. Chapter 8 tonight, we have seen Ezra's observance of the Word and the commission of the king. He faithfully carried out everything he studied and received from the king. So, chapter 9, you're going to see Ezra teaching and reforming based upon the word that he possesses. Come on now. You catching our drift here? Yep. Chapter 10, you will see the effects on the nation as a whole, and you will also be able to put together some glimpses of what the fivefold ministry looks like in the Older Testament. Ezra is a type of a second Moses, and he regularly, through the coming chapters, especially nine, will bear resemblance to the first five books and their content. In fact, regularly quoting from Deuteronomy, the specific book that he received from his great-grandfather, and doing the same things that Moses did when the people were in rough shape. Look, as my brothers bring us to a close, though, I can't help but just emphasize a few things that I feel heavy now concluding the teaching as a pastor. One, many of you have been ashamed of things that you, sh you really should not be. Others have failed to be ashamed of things that God is ashamed of in this room. But tonight, we can get that right. You heard it many times before. You heard it during the teachings in Esther, and you heard it this evening. If we are willing to publicly fast, pray, and repent, there is nothing that limits our God from bringing about restoration. Look at me. You've had a 20-year marriage problem. If you deal with it like the men in the Word deal with it, then you can see real change. Amen. But of course you could spend another 15 or 20 years trying to deal with it privately and see how that works for you. Works out so well thus far. The other is the sacred things that they carry. I mean, they actually had a scale that they had to bring it to. Yeah. And it wasn't just based upon how people perceived their guardian care of the Word. They had to put it out front for everyone to see how did they treat it. Thanks, our God is calling us to raise up Levites who are able to purify the sacred things. If you are not in touch with how impure you make everything you do for the Lord, 
then you need to go back to the altar and spend enough time searching the face of God to figure out your own condition, and you might need a born-again experience again. But I'm speaking to my family, and I know a lot of you know that much of what you do is not impure. Saints, there is an enormous amount of hope when you realize that the way you purify a vessel, that you take something that is common and ignoble and make it noble, make it usable, by direct and open contact with Levites whose job is to purify it. Mm. See, why do you think the Lord's had us working in teams since a little before we began this year? Yeah. Of course, your team can't purify something that you don't let them purify. That's a good word. See, in this house, we need to raise up Levites, and it starts with the way that we treat the sacred things in our own homes, inviting for, asking for the purification of our own vessels so that we might be considered noble in our king's eyes. Because this body will transmit what has been given to us when it is weighed out before the throne room of God. And I assure you, his scales are exact. Pastors? What an incredible season that we're in. Sunday was as fine a time for us as any that I've ever experienced in my time here. And we're the kind of church that's not going to rest on even that finest of services. I want to read to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verses 1 and 2 out of the ESV, Beth, if you put it on the screen for us. This is what the Lord is doing. I'm going to share a quick thought and I'm going to remind you of what Judah, Justin, Nick, and Peyton have said to you. 1 Corinthians 4.1 says, This is how one should regard us. Somebody say, This is how I should be regarded. This is how I should be regarded. As servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, somebody say moreover. Moreover. It is required of stewards that they be found faithful. I just happened to look this up because I was alerted to it from a brother. The word for servants of Christ there is hyperetes. It means a servant or an officer. What the Lord is doing here is building a group of people who will serve in an office like the Levites can. And the way that that God is doing that is He is causing us and demanding that we're faithful. Not the kind of faithful that you did on the first day that you got saved, but an ever-increasing faithfulness because of what He is calling us to. When I look at Juan, I know that marriage is in his future. God is calling this man to be the kind of servant of Christ that can also be notified and be recognized as an officer in the kingdom of God. I'm watching God do it. And you know how he's doing it in Juan's life? Through times of contraction and expansion. You know all that stuff that you let slide before? Ah, You can't let it slide anymore. Birthing a great man. Birthing an incredible man of God who's going to be a man like Ezra. How do you think he's going to do it in you and me? The exact same way. You know, all that stuff that, why is this, why is this no longer okay in me? Because God is calling you higher, Amen. and you've got to be Amen. faithful. Amen. He's going to measure out every ounce of what he's been given you, but this is going to be the type of church 
that creates men and women who get there to the end and are able to bring that sacrifice, what they were entrusted with, and see it fully counted out down to the smallest measurement. Pastor Judah said, now is the time for us to go up like Ezra and the men with him. Now is the time for us to rise to meet the high call of God and prove faithful with what has been deposited into us. Justin Treister said, standing for righteousness in your own thoughts, your own heart, your own family is the beginning of the purification process. When we stand in God's assigned function and will, it is impossible for the enemy to overcome us. Pastor Nick said, our God is interested in your success, not your failure. He will cause the man who knows his actual state to grow when he asks. Then we will all glory in the accomplishment of the mission together. Somebody say together. Together. Because we know who has made us capable of completing it. Pastor Peyton said, the good deposit is not light in this house. Our application of it often has been that. Tonight, we are, all of us, we're choosing to reapply what we've already been given so that we are proving faithful and we're able to be officers in the kingdom and transmit this to those around us, and to our next generations. Are you guys accepting the challenge to rise to be office? Yes! Yes. We encourage you with this. It requires that the deposit of Devar is put in your mouth. And that can't be done at a distance. That has to be done through relationships. We have more unity in this body than we've ever had before. And God is demanding more. More. Those areas where you have distanced yourself. Maybe stood three feet from someone that is wanting and giving the deposit of divine. If you stay silent and don't engage, you're not rising to the call of being an officer. You have to engage. That requires a steadfast commitment that what has been entrusted to you prove faithful in. That means the minutes, the seconds throughout your day, you are eagerly troubling yourself to ask God to bring it back to your your Remembrance and immediately put it into practice. Just think. How are you at the spiritual state that you are right now? Is it more than it was a year ago? Yes. Why, did it magically happen because you put it in your one note? No. No. You put it in your one note because you are going to study it over and over again to put it in your heart that it may come out of your mouth. What God has been giving us day in and day out for decades, I want to prove as a faithful steward of what he's given me. I want to let his words be my words. And I want our words to be your words. So when someone hears Adam Corp, someone hears J.J. Moloch, when someone hears Mario Clement, you know what I, 
I think the highest accolade is. Man, that sounds just like the guys at the kibbutz. Man, that sounds just like something Pastor Eric would say. That sounds just like something Pastor Wade or Pat, uh, Pastor Matt would say. In fact, I already asked Pastor Wade, and you just said the exact same thing that he said. <laughs> that is the deposit of the bar in your mouth. So rise to your feet. So look, as we pray, the very specific points that my brothers have pointed out of what we've been entrusted with but have done little with, let's turn it around tonight. Amen. Yeah. Let's be faithful to take the weight of this heavenly gold and silver and actually treat it as the riches that it is. Devour the word. Then put it into practice. Amen. Amen. Mighty God, we thank you for speaking to our souls. Lord, for highlighting the areas thank you, Lord. in our lives where we have not taken what you have entrusted us seriously. Thank you, Lord. Lord, may our devotion turn to you with ever-increasing fervor and fire. Lord, may your spirit, with the help of your spirit, that we guard what you have entrusted to us. Lord, that we put it into practice in every single area of our life that when we stand before you, we will not be ashamed, but we will be called good and faithful stewards of your house. Lord, I say in this house, raise up officers in your kingdom. Raise up Levites who will carry your word on their shoulders. Lord, who will bring it across deserts and into nations. They will feed the hungry. They will resurrect the dead. And they will make your name great from one end of the earth to the other. May it start here, with us, in us, in our homes, that your word may be on our lips at all times. We love you, Jesus, and we thank you for this word tonight. Amen. Amen. Amen.